The Netra, Old Navajo Land. This is our holy land, a place where the Navajo belief and value system of begins in prayer and song. We believe that we've been here since the beginning of time, not in this human form, but in a spiritual form. This world that we're living in now is called the fifth world, the changing world or glittering world. Back then, we refer to ourselves as the wind or air-spirited people. We had wings so we could fly from one world to another. The first world was a black world. The second world was a blue world. The third world was a yellow world. The fourth world was a white world. And this is the fifth world. It's a combination of all those beautiful colors. The holy people, the yin, the ne'e, Talking God, Black God, and others came to greet the wind-spirited people. They created first man and first women out of two ears of corn, our most ancient ancestors. เสร็จสนัดเลตโตยอดกุยสะโซยสนัดสะกินัสอาโดเลตาลียาอะเนตะฮอนเนตะฮะนากุโตโนเซลโกสะกะเตเนเนจะนาโฮลจิสโตเล
the Maedej Gijni clan is translated to the Coyote Passway people who originated from Hamas Pueblo. These historical events took place long before the arrival of the conquistadors. Now let me ask you this. Are the Navajos direct descendants of the Anasazi, Fremonts, Hohokam, and others? Think about it. Yat eh! Welcome to Canyon de Shea National Monument. Leon Skyhorse Thomas Yin Shea. Kia Anin Shle. Tachini Bashes Chin. My Dej Gizni Dasha Che. Katnazani Dasha Nala. I will take you through Canyon de Shea and explore the history and culture of the Anasazi, Hopi, and Navajo people. The Navajos call this canyon Sayet, which means Rock Canyon. On one of the old Spanish maps dated 1778, they referred to this canyon as the Cheyet. When the United States government claimed this area, they call it the Shea. We will stop at some of the major ruins and points of interest, so come along. The Anasazi have occupied this canyon for over 1,000 years. They basically grew corn, squash, beans, and cotton. These people were very short, five feet and under. They lived to between 40 and 50 years of age. Trade items such as parrot and macaw feathers from central Mexico and South America were found in the canyon, along with abalone shell from the Pacific Ocean and turquoise, which was also found in abundance. By the 1300s, the Anasazi abandoned their homes throughout the Southwest, including Mesa Verde, Chaco Canyon, and Monument Valley. The Hopi Indians were in and around Canyon de Shea between 1300 and 1600 AD. No permanent structures of the Hopi have ever been found, only Hopi pottery, baskets, burials, and a few rock art sites. The Navajos came into this area during the early 1600s. 
Vasquez de Coronado arrived in the southwest in July of 1540 AD. He was the first of many Spanish that brought destruction, forced baptism, and warfare with the Navajo and other Native American tribes. In January of 1805, Lieutenant Antonio Nabana led over 300 Spanish soldiers up from Old Mexico in retaliation against Navajo raids into the Rio Grande area. The Navajo men were away at the time, hunting up in the Lakotchikai Mountains. As the Spanish soldiers were passing this ledge, the Navajo women began to shout down at the soldiers. The Navajo women knew the Spanish language because she had been a slave. The soldiers stopped, looked up, and immediately began to climb the steep talus. The Spanish soldier began to argue with the Navajo women as they started to fight with one another. As they struggled, they both slipped and fell to their deaths. The Navajos refused to surrender. The soldiers followed the rim of the canyon and immediately began to fire their bullets into the small cave. One of the Navajo men covered himself up with the dead bodies. As night fell, he slipped away. That's how we get the story from the Navajo's point of view. We also get the story from the report that was filed in Santa Fe by Lieutenant Antonio Nabana. He said the following morning, the soldiers could still hear noise coming from the cave, so they continued firing their bullets into the cave. Sometime during the late afternoon, the noise stopped, so they entered the cave. Inside, they found the bodies of 115 men, women, and children. This cave is known as Massacre Cave. If you look very closely at the Spanish mural, you can see two white dots above the horse riders. These represent the sun and the two days of fighting. Each year we welcome thousands of visitors here to beautiful Canyon de Shade. It's our opportunity to share the canyon through Navajo eyes. Good morning. Okay, 75 feet up on the small ledge are some of the most beautiful pictographs created by the Anasazi and Navajo. The white color pictograph is a deer with its antlers sticking upward. The zigzag line represents water ripples or sound waves. The circles, brown rainbow, and human colored designs were made by the Anasazi. The antelope and horses were made by a Navajo man by the name of the Behyaja Lila Sheep. This was done sometime around the 1830s. Because of the antelope, we call this antelope house ruin. The Anasazi migrated from the four cardinal directions, Mesa Verde, Chaco Canyon, Kienta, and other places near and far. They left this migration symbol on the sandstone wall, the reverse swastika symbol, which represents four directions. It was also a welcome sign. If one was traveling through this area, 
and they saw the symbol, it was a place where they could eat, trade, and sleep. You can also find a symbol on older Navajo rugs. These rugs were woven during the late 1800s and early 1900s. Thank you very much. Enjoy the canyon. This land was part of Mexico at one time. The Mexican government broke away from Spain in 1821. Spanish introduced horses, cattle, sheep, and goats to the southwest. They did not want the Navajos to obtain horses because of mobility and swiftness that might be used against them and others. El sol aún sigue fuerte y los días ya más cortos. Ya pronto saldré para Santa Fe para vender los caballos. Esposo mío, eres un buen hombre. Has trabajado mucho por nosotros. Estoy muy contenta. Tendremos suficiente alimento este invierno. ¿Qué qué? ¿Pero qué has dicho? No te muevas. Enseguida me arreglo contigo. Navajo. Navajo. Devuelvan esos animales. A mí me pertenecen. Van a pagar por esto, ya verán. According to the Spanish military archives, the Navajos constantly raided the Rio Grande area in retaliation against Navajo slave raids into Denetra. The United States government claimed this area in 1846. They built the fort 60 miles east of Canyon de Shea in 1851. The fort was called Fort Defiance. During the 1800s, there were a lot of wars that took place among the tribes surrounding the Navajo. The Navajos fought against the Plains Indians such as the Kiowa, Pawnee, Comanche, Shoshone, Utes, and the Paiutes, and they fought with half of the tribes in the state of Arizona, along with the Pueblo Indians living along the Rio Grande River. One particular incident took place with the Ute Indians in January of 1858. The Ute Indians from Colorado and Utah came through the Lukochukai Mountains heavily armed with rifles and ammunition, which they obtained from the Anglo traders, miners, homesteaders, and Mormons. They surprised a small group of Navajos who were holding a winter ceremony called the Yebiche. The Utes killed a few of the Navajos who were dressed in full ceremonial regalia, suddenly attacking on horseback with guns, spears, and other arms. They came down here for anything of value, women, children, and livestock. A second battle occurred within Canyon del Myrtle, where eight Utes and three Navajos were killed. The United States soldiers were in the area at the time. By the 1860s, one-third of the Navajo people were taken as slaves by the Mexicans, Utes, Apaches, and other neighboring tribes. The Navajos retaliated by striking the Pueblo and Mexican settlements along the Rio Grande River. The 
The United States government grew tired of the complaints and ordered the Navajos to surrender to the nearest fort by July 20th of 1863. The sun rose and the sun set that day, and not one Navajo came in to surrender. Shortly thereafter, the United States government soldiers began to ravage the countryside. More and more Navajos began to flee from the area. Some fled into the state of Utah as others made their way towards the Grand Canyon, while some fled to southern Arizona and were accepted by small bands of Apaches. A large number of Navajos decided to resist the United States government. They traveled 40 miles to the north and cut down four 80-foot ponderosa pine trees, then hauled them down by hand and by horse to Canyon de Chez. They placed these poles up against the northeast side of what we call Tsela, the Navajo Fortress Rock. And all through the summer of 1863, the Navajos hauled tons and tons of wood, yucca fiber for ropes, flint for arrowheads, and their personal belongings to the fortress in the sky. In October, they began to haul loads of corn, squash, melons, peaches, and other commodities to the fortress. By November, there were over 300 Navajos living on top of the Navajo Fortress Rock. General James Carleton, the military commander of the New Mexico Territory, ordered Colonel Kit Carson into Canyon de Chez to round up the Navajo. Soldiers of the United States government entered the canyon in January of 1864. The Navajo were curious about the new people. Many of them have never seen a person with white skin. The soldiers passed the Navajo Fortress Rock and went down to the mouth of the canyon, where the Cottonwood Campground is now located. Four days later, the soldiers appeared on the rim of the canyon and saw hundreds of Navajos up on top of the Navajo Fortress Rock. Using their rifles, they opened fire as the Navajos scattered about, but they soon realized they were too far away to do much harm. Once again, the Navajos were safe. In the meantime, the soldiers began to destroy all the hogans and crops of corn, squash, melons, along with over 5,000 orchard trees that grew in the canyon. The snow began to melt in February and March of 1864. The people began to worry about their food and water supply. Everyone kept still in order to save their energy so they wouldn't become dehydrated. They began to wonder if their fortress would become their tomb as they saw the cool water flowing at the bottom of the canyon floor. Day after day, they watched as the water ran next to the rock projecting out 125 feet above the canyon floor. At night, under a full moon in the month of March, the Navajos made a human chain that stretched over 600 feet long down to the edge of the cliff above the water. The people carefully lowered their containers to the water below as the soldiers slept nearby. The following morning, after six months on top of the Navajo Fortress Rock and nearly three months of U.S. aggression, the soldiers finally packed up everything and left the canyon. Men, I ain't no fool, but I feel that this is just the beginning. General Carleton believes that this land is rich in gold. I'm only doing my duty. I hope you understand. Let's move it out. Among all my endeavors since my arrival here, there has been an effort to brush back the Indians. 
There is no doubt but that the northern portion of the country of the Navajo is very rich in the precious metals, particularly in gold. U.S. government rations of flour, beef, salt, and other foreign commodities were given to the Navajo at Fort Defiance and Fort Wingate. Thousands of men, women, and children were forced to march the 400 miles east of Canyon de Chez to a place the Navajo called Huelte. The Spanish called it Bosque Redondo, and the American government called it Fort Sumner. The march to Huelte is now known as the Navajo's Long Walk. The United States government counted over 11,000 Navajos who made it to Fort Sumner. All along the way, hundreds of people either died of sickness or were taken as slaves by other Indian tribes or by the Mexicans. Four years later, General William T. Sherman, the famous general who burned down Atlanta during the Civil War, arrived at Fort Sumner. After four days of intense negotiations with U.S. government officials, Barbancito, Manolito, and others signed a 19th known treaty with the Spanish, Mexican, and American governments on June 1st of 1868. Article 1 established the first reservation, which was 3.5 million acres of land. Canyon de Chez was included. The Navajos were released 18 days later from Fort Sumner and were freely escorted back to Fort Defiance and Canyon de Chez. There are many songs, stories, chants, and prayers that were given to the Navajo by the holy people. The holy people, the yin, the ne'e, are part of the sun, moon, clouds, rocks, trees, and all living elements surrounding us. Just being in the canyon, you can feel a strong spiritual presence. In 1882, Colonel James S. Stevenson led an archaeological survey team into Canyon del Murto. The team consisted of scientists, artists, and photographers financed by the Smithsonian Bureau of American Ethnology. They discovered two naturally mummified bodies in Mummy Cave, the largest ruin in the canyon. Because of this find, Colonel James S. Stevenson documented the northern canyon as Canyon de los Myrtles. The White House ruin is the most famous ruin within the National Monument. It is estimated that at least 60 rooms existed here at one time. The first Angloman to see the site was a military expedition documented by Lieutenant James A. Simpson in 1849. He referred to this site as Casablanca, the White House, because of the white gypsum plaster on the upper floor of the ruin. 
Spider Rock is the holiest place in the canyon. This is the place where the hero twins, Monster Slayer and Child Born of Water, came to visit Spider Woman. They were given special songs and weapons for their journey to visit their father, the sun. It is also the place where Spider Woman taught the Navajos how to weave. Our ancestors who have walked this corn pollen road of life have returned to the earth. They are part of the trees, rivers, canyons, and mountains, as well as the entire universe. We are the children of the holy people. We are just passing through this world. Respect yourself and your relatives, as well as Mother Earth and Father Sky. May you walk in beauty. What is the relevance of mental health for economic development in low and middle income countries? Why do you think we should think about mental health when we talk about poverty? Is there any connection between mental health and poverty? Well, to answer these questions, I'd like to begin by introducing you to Nandi. So Nandi lives in Kailicha, which as many of you know is a large uh, peri-urban township not far from where we are here in Cape Town. And in many ways, Kailicha resembles the large and growing urban slums that mark the uh, major centers across sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and Latin America. It's characterized by high levels of poverty, unemployment, uh, high levels of uh, violence and crime, uh, crumbling infrastructure with in inadequate housing, education, and healthcare facilities and inhabited by people who've often come from rural areas to the city in search of work. 
So we meet Nandi when she attends her first antenatal clinic appointment. She's pregnant with her first child. And uh, when we meet her, she presents with all the classic symptoms of major depression. She has low mood, she's tearful, um, she's worried on a day-to-day -day basis about how she's going to handle having a child in her life. She's withdrawn from a lot of her normal social support uh, systems and her normal activities. She's struggling to sleep at night, she's lost her appetite, uh, and so on. Now, when we probe a little bit further, we find that many of the issues underlying her experience of depression are related to poverty. She has uh, no steady job, not a steady source of income. She has an, a big concern about food security going forward. Um, she's threatened by uh, the prospect of violence and crime on a fairly regular basis. She's worried about the leak in her, in her shack. And um, she can't help but compare her own circumstances to those of people who live not far from her. In other words, she's very aware of inequality uh, within our society. Now, the irony is that although Nandi feels uh, terribly alone, she's actually not alone. Between 20% and 33% of women who attend antenatal clinics in Kailicha have been found to suffer from major depression or acute psychological distress. So that's one in five, or in some studies, one in three women. And these uh, problems of maternal depression have impacts not only on the mother, but also on the infant's development. And this has been shown in a number of studies from countries around the world. More broadly, uh, there are around 350 million people who live with depression. And most of those individuals live in low and middle income countries, as you can see on this slide. It's predicted by the year 2030 that depression will be the second leading cause of health disability in the world. And around 866,000 people commit suicide every year. So I undertook my training as a clinical psychologist in the mid-1990s, and during the course of my training, I met many Nandis. I met people whose experience of mental illness was completely uh, enmeshed or intertwined with their experience of poverty and social adversity. And I remember being very struck by this at the time. I was also struck by the reality that those who have the most needs for mental health care often have the least access to care. And so I took a decision fairly early on in my career to devote my efforts, instead of seeing one client after another, to trying to strengthen mental health policy and services and systems to provide care for people like Nandi who have very little access to mental health care. In the years after I qualified, I, I got a job working on a research team at the University of Cape Town developing the, fo the first post-apartheid norms for mental health services in South Africa. And on the strength of that work, I was invited in the year 2000 to do some work for the World Health Organization, uh, where I worked for about five years. And I joined a, a very dynamic and exciting team of international policymakers, practitioners, and researchers, developing policy guidelines to try and help, especially low- and middle-income countries, to give greater priority to mental health and plan adequately for community-based, evidence-based services. But this issue of the link between poverty and mental illness continued to both trouble and also intrigue me. And so in 2005, I returned to UCT, where I'd studied, and joined a uh, research team on a project called the Mental Health and Poverty Project. And as part of this work, I led 
a large systematic literature review uh, to explore the relationship between poverty and common mental disorders, that is depression and anxiety disorders in low and middle income countries. So what is a systematic literature review? Well, essentially, it's a study of studies. So instead of going out into the field and gathering data from study participants, we try and survey the research that's already been done. We look for published studies to try and develop a definitive answer to a particular research question. And in this case, our question was, is mental illness associated with poverty in low and middle income countries? So what did we find? Well, we found quite a few studies. We found 115 studies from 36 countries, and we found actually quite a consistent pattern that despite varieties in the way in which poverty is defined, there was a consistent finding that, yes, people who live in lower socioeconomic positions or in poverty have increased risk for mental health problems. And this was true uh, across the life course for adults, and it was true in urban and in rural areas. Now, it's important to point out that this doesn't mean that all poor people have mental health problems. Neither does it mean that the rich don't have problems. What it does mean is that the risk for developing a mental health problem is greatly elevated among people who live in poorer communities. And that those social and economic risk factors combine with genetic risk factors to lead to the manifestation of a mental illness in a particular individual. Now, um, we were quite intrigued by this and really wanted to take it to the next level, which is to then ask the question, well, which comes first? Uh, does poverty lead to depression, or does depression lead to poverty, for example? Well, broadly, there are two causal pathways that link mental illness and poverty. On the one hand, there is the social causation pathway, and according to this pathway, uh, people who live with, uh, in circumstances of poverty have increased risk for mental illness. Why? Because they live with the constant stress of food insecurity and income insecurity. They le have less social support networks, are more likely to be exposed to violence and crime, and also have increased prevalence of other health conditions like HIV, TB, and malaria. So all of this leads to an increased prevalence in uh, mental illness. But on the other hand, there is the social drift pathway by which people who live with a mental illness tend to drift into or remain in poverty during the course of their lives. Why? Because they're often more disabled by their mental health condition. They suffer stigma and are excluded from income-generating opportunities. And also, they tend to spend more on healthcare, and this erodes assets and wealth over time. So this cycle of poverty and mental illness, social causation and social drift grinds on from year to year, from generation to generation, maintaining millions of people around the world in poverty and illness. It's important to understand also that there are some differences with different mental disorders. So social causation seems to be more applicable to depression and social drift more applicable to schizophrenia. But in either event, we found recently that both social causation and social drift are relevant and uh, have a bearing on depression. Now this then raises the next question, which is how does poverty get under the skin or more accurately into the neural pathways of the brain? Well, there have been a number of cognitive, affective, and behavioral mechanisms that have been identified. Firstly, at an affective level, uh, living in poverty or with conditions of scarcity increases our stress or, an or our anxiety, and this leads to an increased production of the stress hormone cortisol. And this has been shown in a number of studies. In, in one fascinating study, 
from Mexico in the Opportunidades program, households that received cash transfers or social welfare grants uh, were shown to have lower cortisol levels in children aged two to six. Isn't that amazing? Poverty gets under the skin even of young children. Related to these affective mechanisms are certain cognitive mechanisms. Uh, one example is future discounting, the tendency we all have when we're faced with conditions of scarcity to discount future rewards for more immediate rewards. So, for example, Nandi, given the choice of receiving $5,000 in six months or $1,000 now, would almost certainly choose $1,000 now. She has very pressing financial concerns whereas people who are better off can afford to wait. And that develops a certain mindset around how we manage, we manage longer-term rewards. Secondly, um, there's a tendency or a capacity among people who are exposed to conditions of scarcity to have reduced executive functioning. This means reduced capacity to plan and to think in the long term strategically about how to manage a number of issues, including finances. So in circumstances of poverty, we might be more inclined to take out a short-term loan, which puts out the fire of an immediate financial crisis, but might put us in a more difficult position in the long term in terms of debt repayments. And thirdly, uh, there's a, a tendency to have an external locus of control, to believe that our circumstances are beyond our control, and this reduces our own sense of agency and develops a, a kind of learned helplessness and hopelessness. And then together with these cognitive and affective patterns, uh, there are certain behavioral patterns, and, and chief among these is risk aversion. We tend to stick to the, the straight and narrow, to the things that are less risky, because there is so much at stake. So I think it's really important that we understand these cognitive and affective mechanisms, and we understand the social causation, social drift pathways, because I think they provide us with very important clues as to how these cycles can be broken. In 2011, we published a study in The Lancet um, which looked for studies which asked the simple question, sorry, can the vicious cycle of poverty and mental illness be broken? And first of all, we looked for interventions that addressed the social causation pathway. And these were classic poverty alleviation interventions like cash transfers, asset promotion programs, uh, microcredit loans, and evaluated their mental health impact. And what did we find? Well, first of all, not a lot of studies, and secondly, somewhat of a mixed message uh, or mixed findings. In, in some studies, uh, microcredit actually elevated stress, but in other studies, asset promotion and cash transfers led to mental health improvements. But then when we looked at things in the other direction at interventions that address the social drift pathway, we found a very interesting and I believe quite compelling story. And this is that mental health interventions, and these are classic mental health interventions like psychological therapies, psychotropic medication, psychosocial rehabilitation programs, led not only to mental health improvements, but also to economic improvements. In other words, these mental health interventions were forms of sustainable poverty alleviation. They improved functioning, and they enabled people to become uh, more equipped to generate income. And these benefits extended not only to individuals, but also in some studies to households. So this is now leading us to ask, can we take this to the next level? Could we perhaps combine poverty alleviation interventions, 
like cash transfers, with mental health interventions. For example, could we combine cash transfers with brief psychological therapies like cognitive behavior therapy? And at the moment, we're busy doing exactly this. We're planning for a large randomized control trial targeting unemployed youth in Nairobi. And we will be pairing cash transfers with a problem management plus intervention to evaluate both mental health and economic outcomes. And I believe there's huge potential here for another reason, and that is we could potentially adapt our psychological therapies to tackle these cognitive, affective, and behavioral mechanisms I was speaking about earlier. So cognitive behavior therapy, uh, as some of you might know, in the treatment of depression and anxiety, deals with people's dysfunctional cognitions, their rigid, often inaccurate beliefs about their world. Could we not use these approaches to deal with things like future discounting, to address having an external locus of control, to empower people to think differently about themselves, about their well-being, and also about their economic circumstances? I believe that there is huge potential in this regard. The good news is that there is increasing political traction for this idea. Um, in April this year, the president of the World Bank, uh, Dr. Jim Yong Kim, together with the Director General of the World Health Organization, uh, Dr. Margaret Chan, launched this high-level meeting in Washington, D.C. And the meeting was called Out of the Shadows, Making Mental Health a Global Development Priority. And at that meeting, they committed themselves and their organizations to giving greater priority to this for long, a long-time neglected priority of mental health. Also at that meeting, new evidence was presented that for every dollar invested in mental health care, there will be a $4 return on investment at an economic and health care level uh, from the years 2015 to 2030. That's a pretty good return on investment. And finally, very encouragingly, although mental health was excluded from the Millennium Development Goals from 2000 to 2015, there are now specific mental health targets in the Sustainable Development Goals from 2015 to 2013. So this is good news. There's good political traction. There's now good emerging evidence for effective interventions that could potentially break these cycles. So bringing it back to Nandi, imagine a different future for her in which she was able to access routine screening for mental health problems as part of antenatal care. And if she was in need, if she could receive counseling or psychological therapy or referral to a specialist, if she was found to have mental health problems. And could these potentially be paired with a basic income grant to provide basic financial security? I believe that in combination, these interventions would signal a very different future for Nandi and her baby. I thank you.
Ani Bozo Gila Kasla Checha Hethlich. My name is Joanne Ristool and I am Anishinaabekwe. I live here in the Comox Valley and I give great gratitude to the Puntledge, Aixen, and Comox people for living here in this beautiful land of their ancestors. This is about the history of the healing dance known as the Jingle Dance. It is said that at a time in our history, as a people, a great sickness came upon the world. Many of our people were suffering and the children were also becoming very, very ill. A man in one of our villages who was very worried about his daughter prayed to the great mystery. And it is said that he received a vision in a dream to help the people. In this vision, the man saw four women each of whom wore a very distinctive dress. The dress was covered with shiny metal cones. The women moved their feet in a very precise way, gently touching the earth, moving in a circle, following the path of the sun. They did not cross their feet in any way or change their directions as they danced. The color of the dresses were red, yellow, green and blue. When the man awoke, he told his wife of the dream and showed her how the women were dancing. The women knew that she must call upon the strong women of the village to help her to bring this dance to the people. The women came together and made the dresses exactly as they had seen in the dream. The women took on the responsibility of teaching the dance and the sacred way in which the dancers were to hold themselves. The village was called together and the drummers began to sing. One by one, the women entered the center area of the village and began to dance. As they danced in a circle, the sound of the jingles were heard throughout the village. It is said that the man and his wife had brought their young daughter to see this gift of the jingle dance given to the people from the Creator. As the women danced, the young girl who was ill laid very still on her blanket. As they passed her, she rose up and stood watching them. It is said she walked out into the circle and began to dance with the women. It is said that she received a healing on that day and recovered from her illness. This is how the Jingle Dance became known as the Healing Dance. To this day, the Jingle Dance is still present within the teachings of our people. The responsibility of maintaining the story and the teachings is being passed down through the generations. The Jingle Dance has spread throughout Turtle Island and can be seen at many, many gatherings and powwows. Although the expression of the dance has changed over time, the traditional form of the jingle dance is still held as the original form of this sacred dance and is now experiencing a resurgence amongst the people. At the time of this vision, the illness that had come upon the people was known as the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918.
the gift of the healing ways of spiritual and cultural practice helped our people to come together and connect to the ancestral strength of their teachings at this very intense time in our history. All of humanity has been given these gifts in many forms. For us, as Anishinaabe, we are grateful to the great mystery, Kichimanitu, for the blessing of the healing dance, the jingle dance. In keeping with these teachings, a dedicated group of women are committing themselves to take part in a cultural revitalization project of the healing dance, the traditional jingle dance. Chimigwech, chimigwech, all my relations. Anim Buzu Gelakasla Anishinaabe Kwe Abawasiji Nugwa'am Gatwala Nuhomi. My name is Janine Lindsay and I come from a rich heritage of Anishinaabe, Cree, Scottish, Irish, Mi'kmaq, and I am also adopted Zawadenoch uh, and Wikanuch. And I am uh, very, very happy to be here and sharing our story. Tanzi Bozu Oni. My traditional name is Angie Manudukwe. I am also Cree and Anishinaabe from Manitoba and from Saskatchewan. We're here today to share our story and our journey and our cultural connections. And I thought it fitting that I start with sharing that I was about 13 years old when I first discovered that I had Indigenous ancestry. And it wasn't something that I had ever thought about or had considered. And partaking in cultural activities and learning my traditional songs and dances had never been something that had been taught to me or even brought to my attention. And it wasn't until I was 13 years old when my mom shared my family's history with me and shared our family's roots and our connections in what we call Canada and that our family actually is rooted in the Cody Reserve in Saskatchewan and Tutnawazi being in Manitoba. And it was a beautiful, amazing journey. It was a lot of questions and a lot of who am I, where do I fit in, how do I fit in? And it ended up being that we had these beautiful mentors in the Comox Valley here, uh, Joanne Ristool and Suzanne Camp, who had taken us in and shared a part of their cultural teachings and their stories and what they could share with us in our teachings and our songs and our dances. But it wasn't until my mom felt comfortable enough to share with me that I was Indigenous that I actually got the chance to learn to do the beautiful things that we do with the healing dance, like the jingle dance. And it wasn't until that time in my life that I really started to understand who I was. And I too grew up I think it's kind of odd, but until I was 13, had no idea of my Aboriginal ancestry. So I grew up thinking that I, and always being told that I was Irish and French. And at 13 years old, my mother sat myself and my five siblings down to tell us that we were in fact 
Aboriginal, that we had Anishinaabe ancestry and Cree ancestry. And back in my time and in my day of growing up, finding that out was not something to be celebrated, unfortunately. Um, it was just in a time where it wasn't okay to have that ancestry, so we continued to hide it. And so until I had my two beautiful daughters, and until, I guess, Janine was at the same age that I was, um, that really didn't come to the forefront. We were just who we were, and the Aboriginal part of us, that ancestry, was just tucked away. So when we did meet with Joanne Rastoul and Suzanne Camp and the dance group that we were a part of at the time. It was a learning experience for all of us, not just for my daughters finding out who they were and, and a different part of their background, a different part of their history, but it was also an opening and a learning for myself because I grew up um, ashamed of like once I found out, ashamed of having that ancestry because that's the way it was for so long. So thankfully, when my daughters were learning at that age, I was learning as well. We were all taken into that beautiful circle and we have learned here in the Comox Valley so much about ourselves, even though we aren't from this area, this area isn't traditional to us. Thankfully, we've had the mentors and we've had the beautiful women in our lives that have brought that to us, that we've been able to learn and to just, yeah, be who we are, celebrate who we are. place called beautiful in the mountains our ancient ones those who lived here first spoke of themselves as Dina which in Navajo means the people our wagon trail passes a place known as Circle of Red Stones.
And after that, one called Wing Around a Rock. God's taught our ancestors how to weave beautiful blankets an even better kind than you see us wear. Gods always used to dress themselves in sacred stones of turquoise, necklaces, earrings, coral, and shells, just as we do. When they come near, it sounds like rustling of dry leaves in the wind. For this reason, we like to camp in big circle near some pinyon trees so we can hear the gods come close. Each year, sometimes after first frost, many families gather together to ask help from our great spirit. At supper time, women make bread, we call slap again. It gets named from way dough is passed back and forth from one hand to the other. Sometimes we mix cedar ashes in the dough. Then it is put into the frying pan. Men over there soon get married to daughter of woman who cooks. When they marry, we have our custom. Mother only supposed to visit when daughter's husband is not there. Husband never supposed to have any words with his mother-in-law. In this way, all is peaceful in the whole God. <laughs> Our ceremonies often last many days. During the last night of mountain chant, we have dance of great feathered arrow. Each dancer holds arrow up high with his right hand and after fourth cry, he takes arrow between thumb and forefinger and makes this sound you hear. He says, this Far will I swallow it. Then he puts arrow slowly down his throat. When arrow seem to be stuck way down, he dances round and round in circle. Find 
dancer takes his arrow out of his mouth and holds it high for all to see. For long, long time, we Navajos always built place to live, round just like the world itself. This way, we come close to everything. <laughs> when we sing and dance, we become part of the wind, lightning, the earth, mountain, corn, and coyotes, and all the animals. <laughs> The gods taught our people many magic things which are still passed on today. Without the gods' help, we might easily have been captured or destroyed. We pray that they will cure many diseases of our people and also that they give to us good crop and rain. <laughs> As part of the mountain chant ceremony, we have another magic dance. This we call feather dance. Eagle feathers are put in a basket or on a rug. Then feathers start to rise and dance to the song we sing. Little girl you see dancing with feather is daughter of our medicine man. She dances to the gods of the four corners of the earth. To the east, we ask the gods for sunlight in life. To the north, we ask the gods the magic blanket of the northern lights. To the west, we ask the gods for his breath for our life. To the south, we ask the gods our nourishment from the young plants in growth. And to the center of our life, as we built a sacred fire, which is the vein of the sunlight and warmth. When she dances towards the east, the feather leans east. When she dances north, the feather leans north. When she dances west, the feather leans west. When she dances to the south, the feather leans south. And when she is into the center of life, the feather rests back to the blanket.
Most important ceremony is the sacred fire dance. Out of the darkness they come all dressed in white breech cloth and moccasins, except for their leader, spirit man, dressed in deerskin. Their bodies are painted with white clay. These are the men of the fire society. With each dancer exposing himself to the great heat of fire, they dipped their torches into the flame. They burnt off the tips from the eagle feathers for the purpose of turning black to white, evil to good. Some rush toward the fire and retreat. Others try to catch sparks flying in the air with their torches. They never stop until all have succeeded. Some dance into the fire. It is a task of endurance. Finally, the flames die down. The glow of the sunrise soon lights up the sky. Our people break camp and start for home. The curtain of daybreak is hanging. The daylight boy is hanging. From the land of the day it is hanging. Before him, as it dawns, it is hanging. Before him, in beauty, it is hanging. From his voice, in beauty, it is hanging. was me in the background saying, oh my god, while I was visiting with some humpback whale researchers in Alaska. The guy on the deck shouting, it's a whale! <laughs> That's Captain Andy, who happens to be a humpback whale researcher, with quite some enthusiasm, even after seeing hundreds of humpback whales. And I've had a large number of encounters with dolphins and whales myself, and I still feel very excited when I see them. I'm just inspired by the graceful movement of a 100 to 150 ton whale seeming to be moving so effortlessly through its fluid movement in the ocean. And I emulate that style, that just graceful, I love that graceful movement in the things that I try to do in my surfing and skateboarding. And yes, over 40 years ago, I was the only female member of the famous Zephyr skateboard team featured in Dogtown and Z-Boys. 
We were known to, to live a bit outside the box, be a bit rebellious. While lots of kids were trying to figure out how to stay out of school, we were getting into them to skate the banks and getting in to skate the pools, which led to our surfing style that was our trademark, vertical skateboarding that led to what you see in today's X Games. And of course, I still love surfing that I've been doing for over 40 years, the action of surfing waves, but also I get a lot from just the thousands of hours I've spent sitting on my board waiting for waves in between that time of just having the, the rhythms of the ocean beneath me and encounters with sea life and, and seabirds coming around. At the time that I was on the skateboard team, I was also studying field zoology and environmental biology. I had a real interest in animal behavior, especially in the social behavior of dolphins and whales. They're also known as cetaceans, and I refer to them as the cetacean nation. Orcas, the largest member of the dolphin family, stay together their entire lives. Sperm whales, I am a sperm whale groupie. <laughs> they are the world's largest toothed mammal. They possess the world's largest brain. They can dive to depths of 2,000 meters and hold their breath for up to an hour. But what really touched me the most about them as I was learning about their behavior is that even in fatal conditions where their lives are in danger, they will never abandon their injured or sick. As I was studying animal behavior, scientists were coming out and saying that play is a sign of intelligence. And here we are with dolphins surfing. Another connection that I feel to these, these beings as a surfer myself and seeing dolphins as I'm surfing and they're surfing ways too. Whales also surf. Imagine a school bus dropping in on a wave at Pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> if that's not enough to impress you about cetaceans, I, there's many stories of dolphins in, encountering humans. And this is one from Whangarei in New Zealand 12 years ago. A lifeguard, father of three, had his three daughters out swimming for practice off of off Ocean Beach, 100 meters out, when seven dolphins approached them, slapping their flukes, circling these swimmers, almost as if they were hurting them. They weren't afraid of dolphins, so they just kept swimming and thought, oh yeah, this is pretty cool. But a lifeguard from the shore saw what was going on, he thought it was really odd too, and he decided that he was going to go check it out, got into his little boat, went to just outside of where the dolphins were, and into the water, and what did he see? A three-meter-long shark, a great white shark. What a great day to have dolphins swimming around you. <laughs> In the 20th century alone, nearly three million whales were killed. Many of them are still endangered. In the early 80s, thanks to protests and public outcry, the International Whaling Commission announced that in 1986, they were going to have a moratorium on commercial whaling. A victory. We saved the whales. I remember that day. I, re I remember that time that, wow, the whaling was going to end. Despite the millions of whales that have been killed, there's never been a known attack of a whale on a human. Imagine a world without war, revenge, or retaliation one of forgiveness and compassion. I pondered the wisdom of whales 
and I thought, what would it be like to look into the eye of a whale? So I created this painting of a gray whale's eye. And then in less than a year, on Christmas morning in 1999, while I was surfing a great spot down in Southern California, catching really fun waves, and I paddled back out and sat on my board waiting for my next wave, a gray whale, 15 meters away from me, just 15 meters away, lifted its head up out of the water like the periscope of a submarine, looking around, and it looked at me. Our eyes met, and I was just ecstatic. I was blown away. I had no fear at all. This whale so close to me, but I was just in awe. And then the whale just went back underwater, and right next to it, another gray whale surfaced, raising its huge arching back out of the water and just going back underneath, and they disappeared. I knew how rare that experience was. It's very rare for a whale to come that close to a human in their own environment. And so I felt I needed to look into it. What was going on with whales at that time? Little did I know that that experience was actually going to be changing my life. I found out that despite the moratorium, when the whales were supposed to be protected in 1986, that they were still being killed. And uh, numbers of up to over 1,800 whales were being killed every year between Norway's commercial whaling activities and the scientific whaling of Japan and Iceland recently joining in as well. In 2007, the Japanese government announced that they were going to Antarctica to kill 50 humpback whales. As an artist, I felt I needed to do something about it, and so I came up with the idea of painting a portrait series of 50 humpback whales based on photo identification records of actual humpback whales sighted off of Antarctica. The markings on humpback whales are as unique as the fingerprints on a human. These are sentient individual beings that I wanted to somehow help. And so I did this art series, which may have seemed a bit obsessive. I was wondering if people were going to think, oh, she's really crazy. <laughs> but actually, the show was quite well received, and I was really glad that I was able to do something like that. I also try to raise awareness and appreciation of cetaceans by doing large paintings of them, such as for whales. This is an oil on board that was one and a half meters wide of a sperm whale fluke. And it's big, but a sperm whale is actually twice the size of that. This particular painting caught the attention of the Santa Barbara Whale Festival organizer, who invited me to come up with children's whale art activities at the Santa Barbara Whale Festival. So I thought of origami whales. What about a goal, something meaningful with this, this effort? Okay, 1,400 origami whales to represent the number of whales that were going to be killed in that year. Seemed like a huge endeavor, but through the whale festival, we got children coming and people of all ages folding origami whales. We got halfway there and working with animal welfare organizations who posted information about my campaign on their websites. People from all over the country of the United States, people from all over the world started sending me origami whales. And I reached that goal and then was provided the opportunity to present these whales to the International Whaling Commissioner of the United States. So how am I going to bring these whales to Washington, D.C. in the most visually impactful way? I'm not going to show up with two big plastic bagfuls of origami whales. How about a plexiglass cylinder of all these origami whales as if they're, they're kind of in a display tank or something? And I thought, oh, no way. These animals swim 
you know, 50 miles a day, and they're just such beautiful beings that, that should never be kept in, in, in captivity in a tank. So then I thought of a curtain of origami whales so that each individual whale would be recognized. When I shared the idea with my friend, she said, let's do it at my house. And six other friends came for an entire weekend, and we hand-stitched these, these origami whales into a strand. And that's the first curtain of origami whales that went to Washington, D.C. And there's the IWC commissioner of the United States at that time. Since then, I've created many curtains of origami whales and dolphins for different, different efforts through my origami whales project. Which leads me to a little side note, I guess. When I went to New Zealand in 1980 for my first time, following the endless summer, and I landed into Raglan. And yes, this is my 19th time in Raglan. I learned about the Maui's dolphin, the world's smallest dolphin, which is unique to New Zealand. And it's also critically endangered. In 2006, learning that there was only 111 of these dolphins left, I decided to create a curtain of origami Maui's dolphins through Maui's Dolphin Day. But 111 being such a small number, I wanted to get attention to this, this, this issue, and so decided to create a curtain of 1,111 Maui's dolphins, so that the 1,000 Maui's dolphins would draw some attention. People would go, wow, what is that big thing of, of paper dolphins? And then right beside it, this little curtain of 111, just to show how relatively few are left. This curtain was exhibited at the Te Papa National Museum of New Zealand for three months, and then it went to the Waikato Museum in New Zealand for two months. I felt, wow, this is really great, working with, with children of all ages and having our exhibit in such, such fine places. It takes a lot of people, hundreds of people, folding origami whales, thousands, and lots of volunteers. But I was feeling very frustrated about the lack of information getting out about whales being killed despite the moratorium when they're supposed to be protected. So in 2006, I came up with the idea to create a curtain to represent the number of whales that have been killed. That was 25,000 in that year. But it was an ambitious endeavor that I, I felt I needed to take on. And as 2007 was approaching, that number grew to 30,000. But I said, if I get that many whales, I'm going to make a curtain and I'm going to bring it to the International Whaling Commission meetings in Alaska, which I did. <laughs> Since then, I've exhibited the curtain three years in a row at Whale Day on Maui. The curtain is exhibited inside of two massive festival tents joined together, and the numbers keep growing. It went to 32,000, 34,000, 36,000, because each year I update the curtain to represent that number of these magnificent beings, each paper whale representing a whale, a real whale that was killed that should have been protected. People of all ages have entered, thousands of people into the exhibit. They peek in and they, they see the sunlight on the whales and the, the air flowing through the curtain with all these colorful whales, and they're not quite sure what to expect. And as they walk through this, this long maze of whales and read messages on them and realize the numbers that they've just walked past, some people come out feeling a bit overwhelmed and in tears and thanking me for what I've done. And I feel really grateful for that opportunity to, to work with people, to create art that has meaning and art that empowers through participation 
art that has purpose. I've had the honor of meeting some of the volunteers of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. Here's one of them. And Sea Shepherd Conservation Society volunteers, they go out to some dangerous places in the world, including Antarctica. They get in their ships and literally get between a whaler ship and a whale, putting their lives on the line with direct action, which is something that very few people would be willing to do. In 2007, I invited Captain Paul Watson to view my exhibit of the Odegami Whales Curtain, and he came out to another event a few months later and gave me this Medal of Honor. I was really thrilled that my work was being acknowledged by somebody who does some of the most dangerous work to save whales. While I'm doing something on the other end of the spectrum, working with kids and people of all ages to raise awareness for the whales. A few years ago, as I was being inducted into the Skateboard Hall of Fame, one of my friends referred to me as saving the world one whale at a time. I'd like to think that everybody who has participated by folding origami whales and helping me st stitch these curtains has been a part of that. Lots of people can have passion. That you don't have to be passionate about seeing whales and dolphins. It's turning passion into action that can make a difference in the world. I never imagined that the Berlin Wall would come tumbling down, but some passionate people did. They took action and it happened. I never imagined that, that nations across the world would ban circuses from using wild animals. Some passionate people did, and it happened. I never imagined that with one remaining female black robin, a New Zealand black robin, that left, that that species would be brought back from the brink of extinction. Some passionate people did, and it happened. What sort of thing do you feel passionate about that you feel you could make a difference in the world for? This summer in Raglan, while I was teaching the Whales and Dolphins Ambassador Program, one of my students, 12-year-old Ayla, asked me for some advice. I said, follow your heart with vision and actions. Create your own folds, and you will connect with your purpose in life. <laughs> Thank you. Which is you should never ever stand in a doorway and the um, because it was the only entrance and the only exit if you had to get out quickly, you should never be blocking the doorway for any reason because you may not be aware of the danger inside or the danger outside. If you're standing in a doorway, you are an obstacle. The uh, teachings of Ardenet are also a part of the things that are considered taboo and these are things that you should not do, should not say and uh, participate in any way of things that are not uh, going to be helpful to your existence here in this the uh, third world and so the teachings are also in uh, 
helping you to become a, a person that thinks to protect others or to protect yourself from uh, the things that might uh, do you harm or do your family harm and destroy you. And so it was that there were taboos of things you should not do and they would really become angry with you. And uh, of course one of the first things is the, uh, the mocking of the uh, ceremonies or mocking of any of the songs and that and the uh, prayers and that that are offered and even mocking the way that uh, certain medicine men might uh, perform the ceremony. Do'ochit'ed is uh, what they would tell you is to you do not do this. Do'ochit'ed is you should not say this. And so those are the things that uh, are in the teachings of the, the taboos of our people. Well, one of the very first ones I ever heard was uh, you should never ever whistle at night or the uh, evil one will fall on you. And so I never understood the teachings until I learned it was uh, it came from thinking like a warrior whistling the sound of whistling travels a long ways at night and it gives away your position to anybody that might not be able to see you in the daytime but if they hear that sound it travels a long ways and they'll determine and find you by where the sound is coming from and uh, they might attack you and do you harm or do your family harm and so it was that you never ever whistle at night and so that traditional teaching is uh, still being taught many times as uh, a taboo. And the other thing is uh, that of never ever touching your sister. And it was that uh, they were very strict about that or even uh, any contact with uh, your sibling that would be a sister. Never ever make contact with your sibling. And so those are the things that uh, we're told as far as some of the teachings that are not very, not very much recognized today. Other things is uh, which is you should never ever stand in a doorway. And the, um, because it was the only entrance and the only exit if you had to get out quickly, you should never be blocking the doorway for any reason because you may not be aware of the danger inside or the danger outside. If you're standing in a doorway, you are an obstacle. And the other thing I think it applies to is don't stand in the way of people that know what they are doing and uh, let them do it is uh, where that uh, taboo comes in. So it is that if our people are not progressing, you are in the doorway. You're blocking the way for people to accomplish the things that need to be done. And so it was that the uh, teaching of never stand in the doorway, that's tied in with other teachings as well. But uh, one of the other things is the, uh, the mocking of the ceremonies and some of the things that we, we do in ceremonial settings and in various ceremony. 
and ish is one of them and that is the marking of the body there are certain areas of the uh, the body when a ceremony is done that involves mark putting placing markings on the body is uh, very important and the teaching is, is that dog and which is don't make a mark up your body and uh, the reason is that uh, when we do it in a ceremonial setting, the markings are made there and they are filtered into the portals where you can receive influence from uh, a good source. And you get that good influence and it helps in the healing of your spirit and of your emotions and your mind. And then you, it in turn heals the body and so that's why the markings are placed on the body after four days after the ceremony is completed you can wash them off after making a an offering or offering up a certain prayer but uh, nowadays of course there are people that uh, mark up their bodies with all kinds of markings and tattoos and uh, the majority of them are unfiltered so it is that uh, our traditional teachings would say when they mark up their body like that, you are giving a uh, opening or a portal to spirits and uh, influence that would not be good. And so those are the things that we are told. Yeah.